Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask that question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley and this is the 440th show of ROI. Our guest for today's show is author Don O'Shea, who is going to talk to us about the memories of the Great Depression, a time forgotten. The history buffs for today's show are Brett Menard and Terry Toppler. The show's theme song is Kayla's Theme, which was written and performed by Mark Zap Zaptel. Our producer and engineer is, as always, Mr. David Baker. To begin with, we would like to welcome author Don O'Shea to the show. Welcome to the show, Don. Well, thank you. It's nice pr- to be invited. It's a privilege to have you. Uh, we call this first segment of our show Farouk Danaren, and our goal is to give our listeners a little background on your subject for today's radio show. Can you start us off with some basic information on what do you mean or what you're pretty much saying about the Great Depression, and why is it a time forgotten? Well, it's 90 years ago, so it's forgotten to a lot of people that indeed probably unknown to a lot of people. The book itself tells the story of some 30 people, mostly Quad City people, who lived through the Great Depression. It tells the story of how they survived the Great Depression, what it was like. Okay. So uh, when you're talking about the Quad Cities, um, is it starting right when the crash starts and goes until uh, Pearl Harbor? or uh, And what perspectives does it take? Obviously, it's going to probably take about the unemployment. But, uh, I mean, I teach modern American history at a high school. And as you and I both know, and many of our listeners, the Great Depression is much more complex than just that. Well, my book doesn't deal with the governmental problems that were faced in Washington as such. It deals with how people lived uh, on a day-to-day basis, what it was like to live on a farm, what it was like to live in a town during the Great Depression. And it tells personal stories rather than uh, great public stories. Okay, so let's look at the personal stories. Uh, You're talking the farms uh, on the Iowa-Illinois side, or how many farms did you uh, uh, do research or present in your book? Well, actually, I didn't research anything. I spoke to people and obtained their stories. The first story I got, for example, was a story from one of my bailiffs when I was on the bench over in Rock Island County. I was in the circuit court at the time. I had just come out of court. And something happened in court that made me say to to, uh, the bailiff, you know, I really wish I had tape recorded the stories my father and mother told me about the Great Depression. And the bailiff's name was Jim Gartellis, and he said, Judge, I got a great story for you. I said, I have a tape recorder. And that's how it began. began. I, I really don't know what happened in court that made me say that or what made me go in this direction but that's how it began okay so how long did it take you to write the book if i may ask well it took me a long time because i would record some stories and then forget all about it for a while i think i took the first story in 1991 and i finally got around to trying to publish the book about two years ago Okay. Um, and where can we get the book, or where can it be bought at, if I may ask? Well, the easiest place to find it, obviously, is at Amazon.com. You just type in their search bar, in the Amazon search bar, my name, John Don Loche, 
And this book, Memories of the Great Depression, A Time Forgotten, will pop up. And also my second book, which is about to be released in time for Christmas, which is a children's Christmas story called The Stuffed Animal. They'll both be there. Okay. All right. Not a problem. So when you're, when you took a lot of time to obviously write this book, as you stated, what were some of the peaks and valleys? I mean, obviously, you're, you were on the bench, so you had uh, everyday living, which we all experience. But what were some times when you were thinking, man, these stories or what I'm getting down is really popping? And what time, when were some events when you're going, man, I don't know if this is ever going to get done? You know, there were just times when I got busy. I didn't really ever put a deadline on myself. I, I never really thought, I have to get this thing done by next Tuesday. I would gather some stories, uh, type them up based on what I heard in the tape. At first, when I started to type them up, I tried to type them up word for word. And I quickly discovered that they were pretty disorganized. Many of the people, when they tell the story, would jump forward and then jump back and then remember something else and they go back to the beginning. And it, it didn't read well. And at some point in time, and I can't tell you the exact point, I made the decision that I would be very careful about exactly what they said. I didn't want to change the meaning of what they said one iota. But on the other hand, I began to realize that if it was going to be a readable book, there had to be some order to every one of the stories. And that really took a lot more of the time than just typing them up or transcribing them on a tape recorder. Okay. So for your stories here, um, I'm sure you interviewed or heard stories from people that were obviously much younger at the time and they were possibly reciting stories of their relatives or people that they knew were older. Um, can you give our listeners a uh, kind of a range of, um, the people that are in the story as you did talk about, it was many different backgrounds. Uh, but uh, did you hear of stories that let's say individuals who are quite old and their life was ending during this time? Well, Jim Gartellis, for example, the first person who appears in the book was an older bailiff. He was a good deal older than I was when I got his story. And in front of every one of the stories, if the person's still alive, I put both the date they were born and the date they passed away. Uh, Jim, for example, was born in November of uh, 1911. The second story was from another one of my bailiffs, maybe my favorite bailiff, a woman named Effie Scopitis, and she was born in 1926. The basic rule that I followed was that the people had to be born enough before the Depression that they might have a personal memory of the Depression. I didn't want secondhand stories. There is one secondhand story in my book, and that's my preface. But beyond that, all these people are telling the stories that they lived. They're not telling stories about what their great-aunt Charlie or their uncle Ebenezer told them. Okay. Uh, we have a lot more to talk about, so please stay tuned to our next segment. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. 
the KALA website is your one-stop spot to find out more about your favorite radio station. Submit a public service announcement, catch up on news about KALA, and listening to any of our three stations, 885-1061 or The Stinger, is just a click away. Visit KALAFM.org. That's KALAFM.org. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley, and this is the second segment of our show referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is author Don O'Shea, and we're talking about Memories of the Great Depression, A Time Forgotten. Our history buffs for today's show are Terry Toppler and Brett Menard. Terry, since you're the resident librarian, why don't you start us off? All right. Thank you. Thank you, Don. Yes, I'm looking forward to reading those many stories. Um, I just uh, visited my aunt, who's now 101, um, and going put, strong. Put me in touch. Put Sorry? Me in touch and get her story for a sequel. <laughs> yes, exactly. Get well, the tape I, recorder I, out and start talking I to her, did. Terry. I did. I, I had my cell phone going. She talked about some of the things that she lived through. She was born in 1920. Um, but I want to talk to you. So what was it like to live in America 90 years ago? <laughs> it was very, very different. Uh, in, in the preface to the book, I talk about how my mother took me up to Canada. My mother was a Canadian who came to the United States after her mother died. And in Chicago, where I lived as a boy, we lived in an apartment building. There was running water. We had a refrigerator. There was uh, central heat. We had all the modern amenities. Now, we didn't have a lot of stuff during the war. We had a radio. We had a Frigidaire. We had a gas stove. We didn't have a lot of other things. But my mother took me up to uh, Canada, just north of Detroit, about 1944. When we got into the train station, it was like going back into the 19th century. There was a huge expanse of concrete. And across the expanse were flatbed trucks with hard rubber tires. I had never seen trucks with hard rubber tires in Chicago where we lived. And we drove, and very soon after we began, we were on a one-lane gravel road with no sign of a telephone post or an electric pole. We got to a farmhouse. It was a lovely-looking little old farmhouse with a pump right in front of the house. And off to the side, to your left as you looked at, was the outhouse. And suddenly I was back in the 19th century. The house had no central heat. Uh, no water, no electricity. Uh, everything was heated out of wood burning stove. And if you had to uh, go to the bathroom during the evening after you went to bed, there was a bowl and a pot. So it was very different. The stories that are recounted by the people that told me their stories really followed that pattern to a large extent. So many of them lived in homes where the main heat came from a wood burning stove or from a secondary stove in the parlor, which might have been a kerosene stove, a coal stove, or a little wood-burning stove. Very few of them had running water. Almost none, at first, had electricity. But then some tell the story of how suddenly electricity came along and their lives were changed a good deal. They could listen to the radio. Okay. Brett. 
One of the things um, that I recall reading a lot um, about the Depression was there were a lot of subtle ways that uh, people would help each other out, um, you know, find work for uh, a neighbor who was unemployed to do. Uh, so they they felt like they were contributing and not just getting a handout. Um, did you have any of those type of stories? Yes. Yes, I think what you just told me characterizes many of the stories that appear in my book. One is from the Reverend Charles Willie, who was my neighbor right across the street for a good many years, and he told a couple stories. His father was a minister, his grandfather was a minister, and his great-grandfather was a minister. And he served, his father served in this little rural church south of here. And when there was one family that had a catastrophe. Their daughter died of appendicitis that poisoned her and killed her. They didn't have enough money to bury the child. And the whole church community in the area came together, and they put on what they called pound suppers and jitney suppers. Uh, a pound supper was a supper where everybody bought, brought a pound of something to give to the, the family that was in need. And the one thing that stands out is that the neighbors kind of police the system. They didn't give money or food, just anybody. They knew who was in need, and those were the people they provided to help. And it happens in many other ways. In many of the other stories, they talk about the people who came to town on the railroads, the hobos, who would come to the door and ask for a meal. And almost to a person who tells a story, we get that story. And they always did give food to the people. They might not invite them into the house. The person might be asked to sit on the stoop outside, and the mother would cook up a little dinner for them. Might not be anything elaborate, but they always provided them with food. And sometimes the uh, people who came to the door would ask if there was anything they could do. And if there was, they might cut firewood. They might help help put up storm windows. Uh, they might help dig up the garden and till it and uh, get it ready for planting. You know, so you, you're you're absolutely right. That was a common thing in those days. Um, question, because again, uh, I had grandparents that uh, obviously lived through it, and they were very vocal at the time. One of the factors that they talked a lot about was the weather. And I'm not just talking like the Dust Bowl and the dry storms that hit um, hit the uh, southeast, uh, southwestern United States. Um, they talked about that a lot of times for some reason, like between the years of 35 and 38 or 9, the summers were just incredibly unbearably hot and the winters were brutally cold. And, of course, this is at a time when people had less than they normally did. Did any of your individuals that you, um, uh, the stories that you got, did they bring any of these really harsh weather times into it? Yes, and th these would include people from the Quad Cities. One of the stories in my book is from a lady named Jean Doden, and she talks about living on a farm out in northwest Davenport and how, uh, during one winter, a terrible blizzard hit, and people were stranded on the road, and they came in to her farm 
besides the people who came in, there was one dog who found his way in, and they invited the dog in, and the dog stayed through the snowstorm till it abated the following morning. Uh, other stories uh, talk about how it was so hot that people would go out to uh, the parks and and stay overnight in the parks just to get uh, some coolness. And it often stayed in the, the depression areas of the parks, the lower areas, rather than the higher areas. Uh, in a number of stories that that's told, and people talk about how every window in their house had to be left open because there was no air conditioning in those days. And if there was no breeze, it was pretty unbearable for the people in the upper floors. I heard the story from a friend of mine's uh, dad who was in that, he was born in 1913, and he said it was so hot in Davenport that people would go down by the railroad tracks just so the trains would get by to create a breeze. Uh, and that was in 36, and he said it was, the winter was the coldest and the summer was the hottest, and that's what they did to deal with the, cool, the heat and the depression. Terry. Yes, I was wondering, um, in your interviews with um, people talking about their experiences during the Depression, were there any adages that came up? I know in my family, time and time again, we'd hear they won, waste not, want not. And I would think of my grandmother's button jar. Uh, I still have it today, where if a shirt was ruined or something, they would, of course, use the material, that, that parts of it that were good. But they'd also cut off the buttons, and they'd save the buttons in the button jar for whatever, you know, dress or shirt or, you know, item they were going to make. And so everything was saved. It was always repurposed before we thought about recycling today. Uh, can you talk about that? What were some of the things that some of your um, people that you spoke with talked about in that regard? Well, in my preface, I talk about my mother had two rules. Don't buy anything at time. And the other one was waste not, want not. Mom <laughs> would darn socks. Uh, even into the war years after I was born, when they developed holes. And if she needed to buy something, she saved pennies. I can remember her saving pennies and uh, gathering enough that she could finally buy a little kitchen radio. But other people talked about exactly what you're talking about. I, I had an older cousin whose story appears in the book, and she talks about how her grandmother would not only remove the buttons and save them, but she'd remove the zippers. And if they mm -hmm. could remove thread, they'd save the thread. Uh, every, I don't know how many of the stories talk about darning socks. That was something that was very, very common. Dick Gage, who was a, a radio and TV personality and a newspaper man uh, in the Quad Cities for the Argus of WHBF, has a short story in my book. And he talks about how not only did they recycle uh, sacks, they recycled shoes. They put cardboard in them. They put rubber flaps on the bottom and glued on the rubber flaps. He talks about how he and his brother uh, bought a couple bicycles so they could more expeditiously deliver papers and how the tires were flat and how they bound up the tires to keep the air in the tires. So they recycled everything. Uh, it, 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 it's amazing what they did. And they even talk about my cousin Pat, whose story appears in the book, talks about how after dinner, when there was garbage in the sink, they would put that in paper, they 
carry the paper out and they use it as fertilizer in their gardens. Yeah. Brett. Thank you. I'm sorry. So what do you think are the biggest differences between um, the sense of community that we have now and the sense of community that existed during the Depression? The Reverend Charles Willie talks about that in great detail. He basically feels that now we're pretty, and Don Wooten, whose story appears in the book, talks about the same thing. They both talk about how in the old days there was community. The neighbors kind of knew everybody, and now we've kind of moved into what might be called the nuclear family, and uh, we don't know anybody down the street. In those days they used to sit on the neighbor's lawn at night, and the parents would talk, and the kids would run around the neighborhood playing games. Uh, I, I think there is a great deal of difference. Okay. Uh, in the in the Depression era, families and neighbors had to help each other out when things really got bad. Now everybody, of course, looks to the government, either the state or the federal government, to bail them out of every predicament they find themselves in. In um, those days, there was no great federal welfare program, and most of the money that came to help the poor came from townships in Illinois, not from the state as such. And they quickly ran out of money during the Depression. So if there was going to be help, it had to come from your relatives or your neighbors or your church. Yeah. Um, a question. What was, uh, do they mention about um, issues of entertainment? Uh, the gentleman who my... Um was my friend of my dad's friend said that, you know, living in Davenport during the depression, uh, you know, baseball was a huge, 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 uh, attraction where they would fill the parks up to watch semi pro players play. And during the depression, they did everything they could to keep prices reasonable because you still had to get away from the, uh, harshness of the era you are still looking for entertainment that might bring some joy in your life. Do people talk about this in the book? Well, we were really difficult times, but uh, this music kept us going or other aspects like that. Yeah, a good deal of uh, the good many of the memories uh, discuss those things. I, I don't recall anybody going into great depth about uh, semi-pro baseball in the area. But I have at least one story where the woman talked about her stepfather being very much involved in semi-pro baseball in Moline. Uh, I, I just took a story yesterday where the woman was talking about how in the early 30s, she's 100 years old, how in the early 30s they didn't have movies in the small town she lived in. And there was a fellow who would come through the town with a projector and he'd either go to a private house or rent a space at a house and show movies. It came only occasionally, and normally the movies were cowboy and Indian movies, but he came, and that's how they did it. There were other stories about how the merchants of the town would set up a movie projector kind of in a, the breezeway between a couple stores, and they would project the movie on a wall of another building. They talk about how they had bands at school. They talk about how their mothers taught them the music on a piano or on, on a violin or something. But yeah, there are a lot of stories along those lines. The entertainment, of course, 
even when they went to movies, was not terribly expensive. And they, you know, they could go. And sometimes the merchants in town would give them a free movie if they would uh, take handbills and put, place them around town, advertising something the merchant wanted to sell. Terry. Yes. Um, one of my favorite trips was to uh, Kelowna, Iowa, where their museum there, uh, it was a quilt museum, but it had other things as well. And one of the things I noticed was flower sacks. And I had, in, yeah, there they talked about how when companies realized that mothers were making children's clothes out of flower sacks, they ended up starting to print the um, put print on them so that they were more colorful for the kids. Um, can you talk about what it was like? Like, where did people get their clothing? Was it something they made uh, or their hand-me-downs? What was um, it like to be able to get things that we just take for granted today? Well, your story of the flower sacks is dead on. I, I don't know how many times that's mentioned by especially the women. And they made a lot of their own clothing out of flower sacks. And as you say, the, the merchants who created the flower sacks began to make them more interesting so that the women would buy them and use them. But it was cheap material and apparently good material. Almost everybody talks about hand-me-downs, not only within the family, but outside the family. Uh, one of the stories of my book is by one of the fellows who was a judge with me on the bench. Uh, and uh, he talks about how his whole family uh, would hand things down from one to the other. Sometimes you'd have to skip because the person who had the stuff might be the wrong size. But besides that, they would get clothes from their neighbors and they give their neighbors clothes. If, if a family had a girl and no boys, they might give the used girl's clothing to another neighbor who had a, a young daughter who was somewhat smaller. And they were, this was very, very common during the Depression. I, I don't know how many of the stories talk about that, but a great many of them. Okay. When we come back, we'll wrap things up, so please stay tuned. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes our 440th show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme, which was written and performed by Mark Zap Zaptel. My name is John Keeley. We would like to thank our noted guest, author Don O'Shea, who talked with us about memories of the Great Depression, a time forgotten. History bus for today's show were Terry Toppler and Brett Menard. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. 
We would like to wish all our listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Hotso Pula Nala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night. Thank you.